0: Every once in a while, you have to hit the books and look at things that you don't see every day, but are in the wheelhouse of emergency medicine.
1: We shut off all kinds of possibilities simply because that's the way our brains think. We have to force ourselves through the diagnostic process, and sometimes that's hard. This is the August issue of Risk Management Monthly. All right, we're now in both California and Michigan. Rick, what's the temperature where you are right now?
0: Sierra Madre's reading uh, 85, but uh, we're going to 97, so we got a ways to
1: go. Well, this is Michigan. We're three hours later, and we're already at 81 degrees, and that's about where it's going today, but uh, at least – at least we get to tell you that uh, that we're not in sub-zero weather like we are in much of the year when we're doing these recordings. And uh, you and your lovely wife are uh, joining my wife and I this week, and I, we hope where there's going to be great weather for you here in Michigan.
0: Yeah, we're heading out there tomorrow on the 7 o'clock flight on Delta to Detroit, where we're going to be staying over and having dinner with the Henrys in Ann Arbor. And then later on in the week, we're going to visit the uh, Lakeside Estate.
1: The Lakeside Estate. Otherwise known as the shack. Uh, But uh, we're looking forward to the visit. All right. I can't tell you, Rick, how excited I am about recording this this month because we have so much good material. And uh, I I think that we're going to have to we're going to may have to run some over into other months, but why don't you start us out with this uh, Convery's report, which is from the uh, insurance company itself and what they think about the emergency department as a risk experience. Well,
0: this is a um, once in a long time study. It's entitled, and you can Google this and you, you'll get it, and it is very, very cool the way they set it up. Um, on their um, website. It's entitled Emergency Department Risk, Through the Lens of Liability Claims. And it's by Tara Gibson and a bunch of others, but, and it's dated June, 2019. Now, can you have something more recent than that, Greg?
1: No, that's good. Rick, this is good. So this
0: is a 31-page study uh, where they looked at 1,362 closed claims trying to find What were the common issues and what are the pearls? And these are quite uh, recent studies. We always say that some of these things, they looked at studies from, you know, 10 years ago kind of thing. And this was from 2014 to 2018. And um, so let's kind of hone down on some of the uh, more uh, interesting points. Now, I'm going to tell you that this is such a thorough paper, you really ought to get it. But they have gone into made and making recommendations involving just about every part of the emergency department process. They even make recommendations for pre-hospital care. They get recommendations for triage. You get, and I think we'll be doing some of those. But if we gave them to you all now, you would glaze over and be in a coma uh, at, at the end of this. So we're going to try to st- start out with just some of the numbers. According to them, and I'm surprised at this, the emergency department, is the fourth most common site of a malpractice suit. I thought, you know, we can do better than this. Come on, yeah, we can,
1: yeah. yeah we've on. been, by God, we've been screwing up for years, and we can keep doing it. But this is very consistent with all the past data. Uh, if somebody said a third or a quarter of your of your uh, money at your hospital goes out the operating room door, yeah, that'd be about right. A uh, certain amount of it goes out through uh, medications and pharmacy, that sort of thing. And this number, somewhere between uh, 20, 25% going out the emergency department, is probably about right. And uh, nothing here looks that strange well, compared to. Well, wait a minute.
0: They said emergency departments accounted for 13% of the suits. Surgery was the top one at 26%. Physician offices. Which I, I didn't. I thought a, you had to really work to get in a suit in a physician's office. That's twenty-five yeah. percent. Inpatient unit, seventeen percent. So we were thirteen percent. And what this study doesn't say is, well, we were where we thirteen percent of the dollars because that would be an interesting number to look at. Now maybe when you get into page twenty-seven of this thing, uh, they say that. But right now in the introduction, they only said that in terms of the incidence. What was the Where were the body systems that were getting us in trouble? Now, my recollection, honestly, is that most recently, the top source of suits was the neurologic system. Weren't
1: you aware of that, Greg? It used to be cardiovascular, but... Rick, I don't know who they all included in this, but certainly in the hospital itself, the not counting physician's offices, the neurologic... Suits are important, and if you look at emergency medicine itself, the money lost on uh, stroke, uh, those sorts of things, it has gone up, and I think that uh, this under this study undervalues what the neurologic system well, means to ER. These these are these are
0: specific. This whole paper is about emergency medicine. Everything they're talking about is emergency medicine. So they said 23% of the suits involved the cardiovascular system, uh, which is kind of interesting because we're really kind of being able to narrow down the likes of the, the misdiagnosed MIs through this heart system and these, you know, Delta troponin kind of things. And number two, Eighteen percent was infection. Well, that's his sepsis business, where everybody's got a strep throat now has got sepsis until proven otherwise. And neuro- neurologic is down to eight percent, which is um, yeah, that's the strokes. Well, and uh, maybe that's some of the um, dizzy patients, which really have um, strokes in the um, posterior fossa. Medication related. Well, maybe that's kind of interesting, it was 7%, but maybe that's medication related to thromboly- thrombolytic therapy. And maybe it, uh, the medication related was related to thrombolytic therapy for strokes. And if that's the case, well, that certainly would bump up the neurologic number.
1: Rick, they had one number here, which should surprise me. And that they said that uh, uh, psychiatric suicides were 6%. Now that seemed high to me that, uh, it, it's not that we don't all have it, but I didn't think it was at 6%. That means one out of every 19, uh, suits is, is a suicide case. Uh, that seems just a little high to me, but hey, you, listen, know, you know, the
0: numbers don't lie. And I yeah, think these are very current numbers and they're, and, and involving recent suits and I think. Basically, the landscape is is changing. they are talking about a lot of suits, 1,362, so it's not just, well, an outlier that basically changed the number a lot. Regarding the spectrum of severity, I was really surprised at this. 70% of the suits involved uh, permanent or significant or um, even minor disabilities that were permanent. They didn't go away. Only 30% of them had stuff that went away, and in fact, of these uh, injuries, a third of them were death. That's a that's a big number, and when you try to kind of bolt down uh, a third of these cases, yeah, how the psychiat- psychiatric psychiatric suits. They talked about GI cases, fracture dislocations were seven percent. It's like, well, the deaths must really be heavily into the cardiovascular infection and neurologic categories. But in any case, that's what they had to say. So I can't, so we can't really talk about frivolous lawsuits when 70%
1: had permanent disabilities or death. Yeah, The, uh, the big question is then with all of these areas, what were the top risk management issues? And number one was clinical judgment. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Surprise, It's what a doctor did, not necessarily the system, not necessarily the materials, the, the uh, hardware, all the other things can be sued upon. This was on doctor judgment. Here's the problem with clinical judgment. Having great clinical judgment requires to occasionally have had bad clinical judgment uh, in the past. And all of us are going to go through a phase uh, where we learn at the beginnings of our careers. Now, what's not explained here is, is this spread out over doctors who are 70, 60, 50 years of age? Do we get worse at clinical judgment as we age? We don't know this. And I think. That question is going to come up, Rick.
0: Well, we do know something about it. If you go back to the USAC study that looked at uh, their closed claims, uh, they had 10 million visits. And in that, they had like something like 98 claims. 16 of those claims actually paid dollars. And when they looked at who got sued, the only marker of who got sued is how many patients you saw, which meant how much you worked and how long you worked. So a doctor who was working and he was 60 years old, got sued, had more suits under his belt or her belt than somebody who worked less. They even couldn't find, uh, Greg, a difference between boarded and non-boarded emergency physicians,
1: which right, is no, a little no.
0: distressing.
1: Yeah, that's that's been coming up more and more, particularly with the increased use of uh, mid-levels in all of the departments. Uh, does it make any difference who saw the patient? And there is no proof at this moment in time that physicians have less suits than mid-levels. Now, you, you understand that there is that inter- inter- relationship between who's being supervised to the degree they're being supervised. But uh, right. it is a myth to say that we can prove that having mid-levels Uh, is of greater uh, medical legal harm to the situation.
0: You know, this idea of clinical judgment, uh, there was a prior study that, and it might have been the USAC study, where I think the number was 56% involved, um, delayed in diagnosis. It's basically, uh, the diagnosis is ultimately made. you know, the second or third visit, but yes. you know.
1: yeah. But,
0: yeah. but it's a wrong diagnosis, delayed diagnosis. It's all got to do with a diagnosis, which means that you need to know the spectrum of diagnoses that can come into the emergency department, which means that to me, every once in a while, you have to hit the books and look at things that you don't see every day, but are in the wheelhouse of emergency medicine which means that you need to take the national emergency medicine board review every 10 years and take that (laughs) damn test instead of the.
1: Yeah. Rick, this is getting shameless. Uh, but, uh, you're right. It, it, I honestly think that it is useful every 10 years to sit down and go through all that material, uh, again, just to remember the other two or three causes just to let them come up in your mind. Because in working in most emergency departments, you don't see the entire spectrum no. of disease every day. You just don't.
0: So yes, so uh, those of you who want the kinder Jenner test with no studying, uh, you know, everybody gets a trophy. Well, that's what's coming up. Uh, so All right.
1: you, okay, now next, next they talk about clinical systems.
0: Now, yeah, I don't know
1: what that meant. Well, I think, Rick, that means the things that we have to back us up, not the doctor's decision, but let's say it has to do with availability of certain kinds of testings, or it may be the timing of testings, when you get them back, when something returns from radiology, how these systems actually work. But then again, they put that down at about 10%. And they gave the same weight to documentation, what we chart. And they said at least 10% of our problems. And, and they didn't differentiate whether this was an electronic system, whatever system it was, but that the charting itself was the problem in the case.
0: Well, you know, I think that there are papers out there that show how mistakes can be made with an electronic health record. And uh, so that was uh, wrapped up into this as well. I want to make the case that, you know, yeah, I think documentation is important. I think it's it's uh, the medical decision-making part of the chart is by far the most important. But, yeah, yeah, no, you know, I'm not going to argue with that. Communications was, uh, I thought you were going to do do the uh, spinal, you to do the spinal tap? No, I <laughs> thought you were going to do it, you know? <laughs>
1: Right. Well, I I mean, there's nothing as useful as every plaintiff's attorney will tell you is to get two healthcare professionals fighting over who was supposed to do what and who was going to get something done. And it seems so obvious. uh, And yet it's still it still sits there.
0: Well, that's why they're focusing on this. All of this stuff about pass ons. Right. And, you know. If you've heard me drone on about pass-ons, so I think they ought to be done in front of the patient with the oncoming clinician so that um, you can introduce that person, you can tell that the patient this is a fabulous clinician, whether they are or not, it's a different story, and that the, the oncoming clinician knows what the story is, what's what we're waiting for, what what the, the response to treatment has been, Who? what doctors have been called, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right in front of the patient.
1: Yeah. They also claim that 7% are directly related to medications you know, or medication that. side effects. Do you think that's right, Rick? I, I think it's got to be at least that simply because emergency docs are being presented with more and more meds of which you don't have a lot of experience. I mean, I I think most people would say the average emergency physician has command of about 25, 30 drugs that, you know, the side effects, the dosage, this, that, another thing. Uh, The more the number of medicines given the patient goes up, the more you're going to have complications. It's just going to happen.
0: Now, they have also, and this is going to be the end for this, this month's version, issues predisposing to mistakes. Now, what do they have to say about that,
1: Greg? Well, first one is they, they state right up front that the emergency department is the most pressured situation in the hospital. You don't know what's coming in. You don't know the exact diagnosis. You don't have access to all the information. So the the high-pressured emergency department system itself is what gives you a certain amount of these lawsuits. We'd all agree with that. But I think the next statement they make is the prematurely narrowing of the diagnostic focus is absolutely true. Uh, this is what Pat Cross-Carrie and all those... Uh, people who have been dealing with this for the last 10 years have said, is that our minds are set up to narrow the gap almost immediately. You see a 16-year-old boy with, with rebound tenderness of the abdomen, and its appendicitis still proven otherwise. We shut off all kinds of possibilities simply because that's the way our brains think. We have to force ourselves to put ourselves through the diagnostic process, and sometimes that's hard.
0: Yeah, that's probably why you need to take this National Emergency Medicine Board Review, Greg, so that you are <laughs> going to expand your horizons of uh, diagnostic possibilities, because no doubt the reason that doctors get sued is all virtually all about Diagnoses. You you didn't think of it. You missed it. You uh, There's all kinds of traps that you can get into. You know, you see these cases where uh, somebody's too big to go into the CAT scan machine for something or other. And so they, the the doctor says, oh, screw it. You know, we don't need it. You know, yeah, when in fact right. that was the, you know, they should have transferred the person. They stopped the doctor. They work up prematurely because it was inconvenient. The,
1: so, uh. I, I, I think they pointed out too that there are certain categories of drugs which are immediately should immediately come to mind as a source for litigation: antibiotics, opioids, pain medications, and anticoagulants. You know, I I saw that, and
0: I I you know one of the things that they don't do at least I didn't get to it is like. The top three categories, but the the top three categories represent one, two, and 3%, something like that. You know, antibiotics, what is that? Uh, Generally a failure to give antibiotics. That's going to be it. That's the sepsis, guys. What are the the lawsuits related to opioids? You gave them in the ER because the guy had a broken arm. You know, I don't know what the uh, lawsuits would be. I mean, you you gave a prescription for a month because they had a stubbed toe.
1: I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what they all are, but it certainly, to them, seemed like a, a problem area. Now, a physician can be held responsible for medications which, which are given over a period of time. If you wrote the prescription and that person drives, if that person uh, is hooked on the drug, I mean, there are reasons a physician can be sued, Rick. Well, actually,
0: we did do a case where the lady tripped coming out of the car with her crutches, and she alleged that uh, the injury sustained was because, at least one of the reasons, was that she had been given opiates in the emergency department. So, obviously, that that can be an issue. But the fact that we talked about that case reflected how unusual that case was. You know, one of the things I think that I like here that they wrote down is when the lab and imaging departments depend on sending you important notifications electronically versus picking up the frickin' telephone, right? You know, uh, it's like, what what are you thinking about here? There's a big goomba in the right upper lobe. You think you'd make a a phone call or are are you just too busy to do that? Mr. Radiologist, come on.
1: Yep. Yep. Well, what they, what we all know is we do eventually find out about these things, uh, but you don't want to find out about what the radiologist uh, thought or feels the differential might be uh, days later. And it's just not useful. Uh, The follow-up on, on that sort of finding can be very difficult because the emergency doc is not trained or set to be looking for some of these minor findings. I mean, we understand why they've sent the, the chest X-ray. Uh, there may be trauma. There may not be. There may be pneumonia. There may not be. But because there's a nodule somewhere uh, is always difficult. Uh, who's going to follow up? Who's, gonna, who's going to make sure they get the care that they need? This is all difficult stuff.
0: The other thing that I liked was uh, not using tools to assist in the diagnosis process. That is like not using the heart score, uh, not using the Ottawa uh, um, Ottawa ankle rules, not using the uh, not using the w- Wells criteria for stratifying risk for DVT and PE and all of these kinds of things that have been people have spent a lot of money and time on to come and show that they are They'll help you, and it's the only reason that an emergency medical record, an EHR, would be of any value to anybody would be to be able to have these pop up to um, facilitate your evidence-based approach to a patient.
1: All right. Rick, let's leave this till next month and talk some about these articles from Medscape.
0: Yeah, there were a couple. Uh, Here's one, a case. On October 14, 2014, Tommy Cleveland's husband collapsed while food shopping. Now, this case is is being presented as an oddity, as an oddity. He was taken by ambulance to the local hospital where he was examined by the emergency physician. 25 minutes after arrival, the emergency physician told the patient's wife that the patient had passed away. The patient's wife and family members told the physician that they saw the supposedly deceased patient, breathing and moving his arm. The physician returned to the patient's room five times, but each time declined to revise his earlier assessment. He told the family the patient would cease to move and breathe when the drugs the patient had been given wore off. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Do you know exactly what drugs those were, Rick? Because uh, I, I, I certainly need to get a hold of them.
0: They aroused, yeah, they, they restored life.
1: Yes. Three hours later, the
0: physician changed his mind and transferred the patient to a major medical facility where the patient died the next day. I thought he died the first day. No. The assertion by the family was that earlier care could have saved the patient. The lawyer noted that physician, that the physician demonstrated, quote, outrageous conduct that transcends the bounds of human decency. A coroner who had seen the patient shortly after his, quote, unquote, death, apparently said to the emergency physician, dead people don't move. <laughs> that was that was a good hint.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Anyway, the family wanted punitive damage for the intentional affliction of emotional distress, the counter-argument was that there was no uh, evil or malicious conduct that goes beyond the breach of a professional duty. It wasn't intentional in, uh, inflection at all. Wife had not sought any care by a psychiatrist to help soothe her wounds. Even so, the plaintiff attorney asserted that the physician's performance was so poor that a five-judge panel should ha- uh, make an exception and allow punitive damages in this case Unfortunately, the decision is pending. Pending, but it just shows to goya yeah, the, the extremes of things that the uh, our insurance companies are dealing with. Yeah, and you know I must tell you, when when many years ago when we were in the emergency department, and yeah, you know, we had a single cover department for forever. They would call you to the floor to pronounce somebody dead. I don't know, do they do that in your uh, day?
1: They they certainly did in my day. I went to the floor many times to pronounce somebody dead. So you, you know, touch them on the forehead and say, gotcha last and uh, uh, write a note in the uh, in the chart and off you, off you went.
0: But I must tell you, I always had this creepy thought that I was up there in such a freaking hurry that went, well, maybe I made a mistake
1: you know, and and this kind of thing. And it wouldn't look good on your record, Greg. Yeah. Well, listen, none of us uh, who remember the old days, we all had a case where we thought the patient had died. We're out talking to the family and the nurse comes out and says, doctor, I need to speak to you for a minute. And they've picked up a pulse or something. Now, I never saw any of those people go on to win the Nobel Prize. In fact, I can't remember that, that any of those people uh, really recovered or came back to life. But I will say this to the family that's watching, be aware that they take any movement, any sign as an indication of life and that they're going to have a restored family member. I think it's okay to have the family sometimes sit with a patient who's near, near dead and as the monitor is slowly but surely uh, fading into nothingness here um, so that, that, that they have to be explained to that death doesn't happen in one instant. Well, uh, and I've certainly seen that a number of times, Rick, where the family was very upset by the fact that we were casual about it. Well, there is one thing that ought
0: definitely be done. Once this person is pronounced dead, that monitor needs to be turned off. Mm-hmm. You don't want any blips coming up there and the pace. Oh, the family saying, oh, what's
1: that? He's back. Darn it. I, All I, right, I, let's I, move I on here, hard.
0: Gregory. This is... Uh,
1: uh, uh, Oh, here's another one from uh, Medscape, June 18, 2019. They talked about Florida's three strikes and your outlaw. Now, very few states went in this direction. Florida is the major one. And basically it says, if there are three jury verdicts, read that again. If there are three jury verdicts against you, uh, the state can remove your license. Uh, it says the state may remove your license. Here's the problem. It doesn't count those cases in which doctors settle claims uh, as opposed to have jury verdicts. And 95% of the time, this is what happens anyway. One Florida surgeon, it's, it's noted in the article, had had 16 malpractice claims with 2.6 million in payouts and six deaths, yet did not come under the state statute. He did not have jury verdicts, which would say that his license had uh, needed to be removed. So the real question is this, what's the function of this law? If it doesn't actually take away license, it doesn't limit actions by by physicians who are having problems, what good is the law? And I think that's a reasonable question because it doesn't seem to be controlling the situation.
0: Yes, that's true. Next uh, issue is an email we have here. I like this one. It's an ED director. He's a new, f- new director, by the way, and he's actually a relatively new grad. He writes that he's concerned about a new law in his state that gives police the authority to demand that suspected contraband be obtained from body cavities and bloodstreams. And, yep. um, he actually sent a copy of the, the form to us. It's, it's, it's noted to be a draft, so we don't know where this is gone, but given the multiple cases that we reviewed where people get in trouble going after contraband up somebody's butt or, uh, or, or else, their
1: stomach,
0: and, yes. Yeah, and then basically they're going to be um, sued because the uh, arrested person is not given consent. And if anything, they may be actively a- opposing uh, the, the process. Uh, and every one of those cases basically said, you're making a mistake by using any kind of uh, uh, process that would render the person like at danger like you, you, you put them asleep. There was a case we had where they put you to sleep w- with uh, propofol. To look at what's going up your butt when the patient uh, refused the uh, procedure. So in any case, uh, this is uh, this is a situation here where they say here. Here's the quote: the concerning part of the form authorizes the use of quote. No more than use of reasonable force if necessary to obtain blood. No use of reasonable force if necessary to, uh, um, you know, look up somebody's butt. What does no uh, no more than use of reasonable force mean when, in fact, the patient is obviously declined? Once the patient has declined to be examined or have a process by you, I think you're on very, very thin ice. I certainly would would get the um, hospital's lawyers, although to tell you the truth, I don't know that the hospital's lawyers would be particularly good at this.
1: Well, what they need to understand is that that there are Supreme Court cases. We've reviewed them in the past. Schmerber versus California about the taking of blood. But the Supreme Court said that the removal of blood was a usual and customary medical procedure. What if the
0: person is wrestling and saying, you're not doing
1: this? At least in that case, they said that that was okay if they had a warrant. Now, as far as entering entering other body cavities, I don't think we have backup in cases that says it's okay for us to go into the rectum or to, for example, stick down an NG tube, not for medical purposes, but for just to obtain samples, I don't know that we have any precedent that says that's reasonable to do. So I, I think that if this is the law in this state, somebody needs to challenge it and get some decisions here. Because if you injure someone uh, going after uh, foreign materials strictly for for legal purposes, I think you're going to be in big trouble.
0: Yeah, I think that the ASEP chapter in this state needs a few spend a few shekels to get a lawyer to basically look at the legality of this um, new regulation because it's gonna to apply to the, you know, the entire state. And I can, uh, uh, the, the issue here is the degree of force, the, the, the presupposition
1: is that force is going to occur. At the federal level, if you're coming into Miami and they want to see whether you've got, you're carrying cocaine with you, uh, they can be put in a room uh, until they defecate or urinate. Uh, but the, but that's not forced entry into yeah, the body sure. to to remove materials and i think that we should uh, we should kind of keep that in mind that uh this this force to remove is the real question
0: yeah i would be very reluctant to, to uh, do anything where the person is physically resisting that process being done i would i would go in the police car and Spend the rest of your shift in jail, which is going to be better than the shift you you were on. Uh, I, there is one other part, though. If in fact, you know, there is some suggestion that something has been swallowed or been placed up somebody's butt, I do think it is imperative to warn the the patient of the potential dangers that occur. That occur it, if this is not um, uh, sought and, and, yeah. and retrieved, absolutely. So I think that if you don't do that, there's a problem there because when the patient suffers a dire consequence as a result of these drugs bursting from the baggies that they're in, it's kind of like, well, you didn't tell me uh, that that would have happened, so be careful.
1: Yep, I I, I agree, and uh, we're going to be interested in following the law in this state and see what's happening because – I think most states would find this highly invasive. Um, and if, if a patient did not want to participate in this, uh, might might consider that a violation of civil liberties.
0: Yeah, lawyer up there, get the ASAP chapter, to look at this and uh, help you out. I wouldn't take it on. And to tell you the truth, I wouldn't get, give it to your hospital counsel because that's not what they do.
1: Yep. All right. Next, uh, we have a question, an email that's come in um, from the state of South Carolina. It concerns the advice that a health system attorney gave to an emergency doctor regarding the writing of an addendum report.
0: That's, I think this is a good good case.
1: This a, is this a very good case. Uh, specifically, the advice was not to write down uh, unless absolutely necessary and then keep them um, as sparse as possible. Um, I I agree with that, Rick. In general, if you're going to add to your note, there's gotta be reasons to add to your note. Um, And and here are the five reasons I've come up with. See what you think about this. If new information actually comes up after you finish putting your note in the chart, uh, before that patient is seen again, you have to put that somewhere, but you need to date it and time it, stick it into the chart. Now, it isn't that there can't be new information. Family members might bring in other information. Some other source may bring information, particularly in medical legal situations, police, etc. But you but wait should a be able here, to write friend. that down. Yes.
0: Uh, she would say that the theme here is to write down things that are important with regards to the patient's future care. Right. So uh, if if you're you're writing something down that it is not, then they she has an alternative for you. But the she there is two examples that they gave of where you might write something down, like you performed a procedure, then and, and somehow that was not put down. Well, that might be important. But they give another example, which is I don't th- think is important. Like counting the number of sutures, and you put down five when there were really eight, you know, well, you know, th- that went out in the 60s. Nobody counts sutures.
1: Yeah, nobody cares. And I've never seen the case where the number of sutures determined whether whether the doctor was going to be held liable or Uh, that there are any other issues that were going to arise from that. Now, there can be reasons for notes done by supervising physicians for PAs and NPs or even your residents. There are reasons why you may want to put a note in afterwards. Why did you advise them to do this or this or this? the patient got out of there before you were able to put your two cents worth in don't we shouldn't believe that at this moment in time it is just the physician who's making notes on those charts and there are things of which doctors are responsible so that would be perfectly reasonable you to know, say i remember this case who we let go 2 hours ago and i did instruct the uh, PA to do the following things.
0: What she recommended was something we've never talked about. However, she advised any addendum related to the history or physical, which is generally a waste of time, be emailed separately to risk management where they are protected by peer review statute. Her reasoning was that the addendums are often written for legal purposes. And if they won't materially impact the future care of the patient, they should not be in the record. Which is, uh, when you think about it, makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Well, that that's certainly one way to handle it. Except you have a flagged this record. How are you going to make sure that it's noted on the primary record that this email has been sent? Oh, that I don't something think you do. Has been I, sent?
0: I don't think you do. I think these things are considered to be irrelevant to the future care of the patient.
1: I think uh, there would be an excellent case made by the plaintiff that there was a record related to their patient, uh, which was not available to the patient and their attorney at the time they're having this case reviewed. Rick, I think this might be a source of disagreement here between the two of us.
0: Well, I think that the whole point of this is that she is claiming that if we sent this addendum, that it would be protected by peer review and nobody would know about it.
1: Well, let's say I want to see the case. Uh, If anyone out there listening has such a case, we're happy to review it and talk about it. But but uh, obviously addendums are reports for information we want to maintain, or we wouldn't be doing it. Uh, so, who has a right to that is a, is a question that might be might be settled by individual state law.
0: But I think one thing that we can agree on is that it should be terse, sparse. Sparse. Don't get you know. Just give us, just give us the facts, ma'am.
1: Yep, I, I would agree with that. You don't want uh, a huge area for debate. Okay, Rick, what do you got? Chuck Pilcher's got uh, a couple of cases
0: that I would like to make some comments on. He has a, a service called Medical Malpractice Insights. It's free. And if you dial up, you know, check him out, uh, the, he'll show you how to become one of his 2,600 plus um, readers. Chuck described a case of neck pain and some facial swelling, but it was associated with a bunch of other kind of vague neurotype symptoms. It turned out the patient was on warfarin. And, oh, by the way, the INR was 13. Details, details. (laughs) And the patient had ultimately, and we don't go through a lot of the details because there aren't a lot of details here, a spinal epidural hematoma. (laughs) You know, we've been talking about spinal epidural abscesses, ad nauseum, but here is spinal epidural hematoma causing the problem. And just like spinal epidural abscesses, they, they, they make the diagnosis ultimately, they do surgery, and there's no recovery of an, any neurologic function. They, it, it is r- a rare case if they recover neurologic function, it seems. So put this in your diagnostic um, armamentarium, Spinal
1: epido- uh, epidural hematoma. Yeah, let me let me just say, without the warfarin story to go with it, and without the INR, uh, this would be a tough case to think of. But they the patient did have those things, and uh, with an INR of thirteen, I would think. That you're going to have to keep this patient around, recheck them, follow things. It is a complex. It is a complex case, Rick.
0: Uh, okay, you have a case now with Chuck.
1: Oh, uh, that that was, had some good points. Involved an elderly individual with multiple medical problems, including atrial fibrillation, for which he was on warfarin. Um, We wouldn't know anybody who's got anything like that, would we, Rick? No, no, no. Atrial fib, no. no, no. The patient fell and uh, planted their face into the ground. They had a severe bleeding nose. Attempts at using Afrin and packing were not successful, and the patient uh, bleeding persisted. The INR came back at 42 which means he's adequately anticoagulated, and uh, he started to deteriorate. The family had called the the uh, private medical doctor, and he came to see the patient in the ED. Wait, vitamin.
0: Wait a minute, that's a reportable case. The family yeah, doctor yeah, actually, came to the yes, emergency yes, department.
1: Who knows? Was,
0: uh, this must have been happening like fifteen years ago. Vitamin
1: was given uh, four hours into the ED stay. Now, vitamin K does work 24 hours later. I mean, it is useful in the overall picture of clotting, but it's not going to take care of the current problem. Why they weren't immediately given uh, the concentrates, which actually, I don't know your experience, Rick, but these work in about 30 minutes. I mean, these are pretty effective uh, well, you know they do change the
0: INR in a you know about that time frame. Yeah, but there is it seems to be a little disconnect too between okay the INR is fixed, we installed uh, uh, factors two seven nine and ten which is the four that vitamin uh, um, warfarin okay. screws up. Yeah, you know the whole idea here is this warfarin is warfarin is is basically screwing up your abilities of the liver to make two seven nine and ten. So this is really about manufacturing these things. So it certainly isn't by any means a a rapid fix. So uh, this stuff was substantially delayed. There is obviously no ENT doctor available at this hospital as there is not in a lot of community hospitals across the country. And um, how did this go?
1: Well, at seven hours after the arrival. So they've been involved in fooling around with this case now for seven hours, Rick, it's not like he came in and a half hour later is dead. Uh, Because he was unstable, had unstable vital signs. uh, The, uh, the decision was made to transfer the patient. Uh, Unfortunately, after his arrival at the new hospital, the patient arrests. Uh, He doesn't actually die for two weeks. So he is in coma and obviously deteriorating over those, those, uh, that period of time. Chuck points out that uh, this is too little too late. If your hospital can't handle something, let's say the hospital uh, two, two hours away has ENT and they can come in and do it, then probably that decision should have been made a lot earlier. You know, know what you've got. And don't screw around with it. They passed an NG tube on this uh, man and found uh, 1,700 uh, mLs of blood in his stomach. Um, Let me testify that that much blood in the stomach is not a good thing. Bad bad things happen when that goes on. Uh, The vitamin K, the way they gave it, did nothing to change the bleeding it would not have affected those liver factors, and uh, why he did not get uh, thrombin complex, uh, I have I have no idea. Well, you know,
0: I don't know whether every little little hospital, you know, what if this was a uh, critical access hospital, twenty five beds? You think they have this stuff that's ha- hanging around that's like three or four thousand dollars? If they don't, they ought to know how to get it. Uh,
1: um, you're right, Rick. That that. Uh, there's going to be some difference, but then you have to ask some questions. What if you can't practice at a certain level, know that and get the patient out of there as soon as you possibly can. I mean, Michigan has some of those very small hospitals, but you, you know, you're never so far that you can't get them transferred. The, the one problem in this guy's case too was uh, I'm surprised I mean, I'm not boarded in ENT, but I can put uh, catheters up both sides of the nose, uh, pull them back, and pack. And there's almost no nosebleed. You cannot stop with that technique.
0: Well, I guess that may be true, uh, but with a fractured nose, it may be, uh, you know, a little bit more complex. You know, one of the things that I like in this case is that there was a discussion. That's that giving something to reverse the warfarin may put this uh, fellow at uh, risk of getting a stroke because he had atrial fibrillation. And it's like, this is freaking apples and oranges. You've got a person who is exsanguinating in front of you, and you're thinking that if I don't reverse this, he might get a stroke. Uh, Chuck says the likelihood of that is 5%, but I, I but there's no quantifiers in terms of the time frame that that would occur, uh, so it's certainly not going to be an immediate effect. So I don't think there was any question here what the priority was.
1: No, and and I think that you've got to decide uh, which risk are you going are you going to deal with. But uh, Chuck said it best: too little, too late. Uh, when you when you when you've got to move on something, know what you got available as your backup and uh, take care of it. And in this case, um, I am surprised the emergency doc did not use uh, uh, posterior catheters to uh, stop the bleeding, which is not a high skill technique. Uh, can certainly be done by most emergency doctors.
0: Well, yeah, now they have all those things you put in the nose and you blow up with the, the uh, posterior balloon in, then there's an anterior balloon in the. It, it, it's kind of like. They, they make it a lot cleaner and easier than they used to.
1: Um, well, that's because they saw you practice, Rick, and they were concerned and figured they ought to help this out. But you realize uh, ENT docs did stop bleeding for years uh, before those rhino rockets and that sort of thing came out. They, they had techniques of doing this. We all saw them. And 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 use some of them as uh, in early in our career, I think um, I think that probably should have been done. Uh, so so this was a case with multiple problems. Uh, Chuck it, also mentioned was, a case in uh, his most recent uh,
0: newsletter, I think it was August, about a forty-eight year old who died of uh, can- metastatic cancer to the lung, where it was you know the it was missed by uh, the. Well, the, it was missed in the report to the radiologist. The, the idea here is, is that there's this miscommunication between the radiologist and the emergency department. And is that an unusual story? Let me, this is like, come on. This uh, affirms clearly the, the necessity to have a foolproof system where you can reconcile delayed uh, reports, uh, del- delayed cultures any of those kinds of things in some kind of manual patients are notified. You, uh, you uh, document the patient's notification, the method it was done. Every hospital, this is like emergency medicine 101. So unfortunately this person was not given the opportunity to be cured because of the delay in the diagnosis of this um, metastatic cancer. Um, You know, we've been looking at uh, a Website called MedMalReviewer.com. MedMalReviewer.com is uh, by Eric Funk, and he goes into cases in in extraordinary detail, showing the the depositions, the redacted medical records, you name it. He's got it. I don't know where he gets all this stuff, but it's in uh, extraordinary detail. Uh, Eric did come out with a book called uh, Legal Case Review Ebook. And um, he's saying that there's a $10 discount code, if you want it, by putting down as the discount code, RMM. In any case, he sends us a distilled version of his cases. So here's a 70-year-old male presented to the VA emergency room by private vehicle with a chief complaint of left leg pain after a fall one week prior to presentation. His initial vital signs were unremarkable, with pain rated at nine out of ten in the left leg. He reported that falling about two feet off of a deck, primarily onto his left knee, with subsequent pain and swelling. It is noted that the patient is on warfarin. This is this is like a recurring theme here, chief. Right. Yes. <laughs> or atrial is- fibrillation. Exam notes, extensive uh, edema of the left leg and ickymosis. Workup was significant for an INR of 1.5. CBC and and comprehensive metabolic panel were otherwise unremarkable. Chest x-ray was unremarkable. Knee x-ray significant for diffuse lower extremity edema. No fracture. DVT ultrasound was also ordered, which required transfer to another facility to get that. By ambulance, they went. Patient was signed out to an oncoming physician with DVT ultrasound results pending. Prior to transfer for ultrasound, patient was given a get this, a dose of five milligrams of warfarin by mouth and 100 milligrams of sub-Q Lovinox, given for the concern regarding DVT with subtherapeutic INR. Is that is that the treatment
1: for 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 uh, DVT at this point in time, Rick? I don't think so.
0: Well, but. you know, it's kind of like uh, treating what the, if you don't make the diagnosis in an hour? Does it mean that you're going to get a pulmonary embolism kind of thing? Uh, and and don't anyway. Ultrasound was negative for DVT. Patient was placed in knee immobilizer, and given crutches, and discharged to follow up with ortho doctor. Shortly after discharge, the patient fell and hit his head on the ground in the hospital parking lot. He was brought back into the emergency department and evaluated by the same physician who had previously discharged him. Patients denied loss of consciousness. Vital signs were again normal. Abrasion to the head was noted. Otherwise, he had a normal exam and no complaints. It is noted that the patient wanted to go home, and the patient was discharged home without any further workup. Unfortunately, the patient was found dead the following morning. Autopsy completed showed a large subdural hematoma with onset less than 24 hours prior to death. Patient's uh, family filed a lawsuit against the nurses involved as well as the physician who discharged him. The reason you have to sue the nurses is because this is the VA. You're now suing the federal government, and good luck. The case was filed in federal court because the nurses worked for the VA, although the physician was on a a locum physician.
1: Yeah, uh, we'll I get... I have seen that argued, however, Rick, that when they work as a locums for the VA hospital, uh, that it's as if they worked for the VA hospital full time and the Federal Tort Claims Acts usually apply to that doctor as well. Now, there are all kinds of questions as to his insurance needs, all that sort of thing, but... Uh, just to understand if it happens on federal property in a federal hospital, most of these people can be successful going to federal court uh, well, for their cases. I think it's kind of
0: hard to sue for malpractice in the federal system. Ultimately, the federal case was dismissed without a trial. You didn't even get to say <laughs> it gives you a chance. Mm. Um, and, you know, it seems to me that, uh, you know, I, can, I think I could sniff out some culpability here. You know what would you think it'd do if, as a member of your family? You'd be damn pissed off,
1: right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Obviously, this gentleman should have been treated as if he had a head injury, uh, particularly since they had given him anticoagulation, uh, and he should have been worked up from that that standpoint. Uh, but I will say this: there is a complex interaction between the Fed system and the and state system, when, when you're at a VA hospital, however, most people can find a way to sue the federal government, not necessarily successfully, as you point out, Rick, but the federal government is not, they're not immune to suit. The, uh, the only problem with the feds is they have the right to determine whether you're allowed to sue them, <laughs> whereas in state court, that isn't the case.
0: Well, it was interesting because they, this, there was a lawsuit uh, refiled in the state court, and an undisclosed settlement was reached uh, against the um, – actually, they didn't say against who. Yeah. I, guess the, I guess the doctor. Anyway, they, they got some money in this case.
1: All right. Okay. Gregory. Gregory. Next, uh, David Esler, a longtime listener and occasional writer, sent us a copy of the notes he used when he or- gave talk to new residents. He's up in Vancouver, by the way. we' We've known David for years. And they're three pages long, so we're not going to go into all of these, but he actually has a lot of things which he mentions to ones. Which uh, I think are pretty uh, unique and are probably a good thing to remember. What do you think, Rick?
0: Yes, I, I think that's true. Although, um, yeah, why don't we do it uh, do we have, and then do we'll we go back. we have time? To, yeah, we do. We okay. do. Okay. So summarize what David had to say there, and we'll move on. I got one other thing or two here that we'll do as well.
1: Uh. One of the things he said was the idea that, that emergency physician has a fiduciary duty to the patient, the obligation to act in and only in the best interest of the patient uh, is, needs to be reinforced. You haven't been retained. Essentially what he's saying is you have not been retained to take care of the insurance money, the state money, the federal money, you haven't been retained to take care of a, an attending physician or a consultant physician's time in bed or resting at home. Your job is to be the advocate of the patient. And I think I think we shouldn't forget that, is that no matter how the system's set up, your first job is to take care of the patient. And I think that's a good idea. Uh, the second thing he points out is that the standard of care have some idea what that term means and what we usually do in most cases with certain kinds of disease. Uh, because you're in an emergency department doesn't mean the patient should get less care, less quality care than if they had presented to a doctor's office, uh, they they had presented, uh, at a clinic, somewhere else, understand what the standard of care requires. Uh, he says that the attitude of the emergency physician sets the tone of the department. I couldn't agree with him more. You bet. Yep. Yeah. You, the nurses, the techs, everybody decides how they're going to behave based on the way the doctors behave.
0: Right. If you come in there muttering and you don't want to be there and it's clear that you don't want to be there, that's not going to be a happy shift. If you come in there bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and your goal is to clean out the department and give make people satisfied with the, the care that they got and their families, it will be emulated by your coworkers.
1: He points out that the attitude, the... Um, uh, attitude in the department uh, has to do with the doctor who says yes to most things. He wants to help the patient. Yes can have, uh, can have a lot of uh, connotations and you can always negotiate down as to what the patient's expectation is. But in general, we're here to help people. We run a business. If people don't come to us, that's not a good thing, and that uh, that yes, the philosophy of yes, which is one Neil Little came up with years ago, is exactly right. Whenever you can say yes to a patient request, yes, you
0: can have yes, you can have a cigarette as soon as we extubate you. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. you know, yes, always yes. If the answer is always yes, people don't want to hear no, no, you can't do that, you can't do this, they can't do that. no. So the answer is yes. Always find yeah. a way to say yes.
1: I, I like his uh, comment that uh, in the emergency department, the need to rule out life threats uh, trumps concerns about uh, regarding radiation exposure in the ED. Radiation is real. We need to be very careful. But by the same token, if you absolutely need an X-ray to determine something's important, the patient's shorter breath if they collapsed a lung, then get the X-ray. The long-term effects of radiation are 50 years down the road. The effect of what's happening to the patient right now is right in front of you.
0: Yeah, I think that that kind of is most important when we're dealing with kids, where there is a heightened concern about radiation, and it is legitimate. Some of these these, um. Estimates are like 1 in 2,000 kids who, or 1 in 1,500 kids who gets this radiographic study is going to have uh, a fatal cancer. I mean, that's kind of, you know, when we look at the number of CT scans that are done in this country, um, it is it, it is enormous. But if you need the CT scan, get it. But don't be frivolous. I mean, I can tell you... Um, I, I saw a paper where they looked at the PCARN head trauma things for kids. Right. And when you are a PCARN zero, the likelihood of you having a um, intracranial um, operable kind of thing is basically zero. And right. yet in one study I saw at PCARN hospitals, the places that developed these criteria, 13% of the kids who had, you know, PCARN zero kind of thing, Wound up getting CAT scans. It was most distressing. These are the experts. These are the ones where they're teaching people to be really good pediatric ER doctors, and you know, it's like holy smokes. But yeah. in any case, enough well, whining about that.
1: Yeah, and I think that uh, I think that most of us try to be conservative about the use of studies. By the same token. Um, you don't want to be in a position of defending the use of the study in an obvious situation. You just if, don't want to be there. Doctor,
0: if only you had, you know, check the box, whatever that's going to be. Yeah. I think, I think in that regard, uh, there are things that are absolutely the, the purview of the MRI and if you don't have an MRI or your two patients are too big to get in the MRI or you think that, uh, well, MRI is really not an ER kind of procedure and they need an MRI um, because it's a some kind of a spinal problem um, or or even something like a posterior faucet kind of thing or, so uh, you know, those kinds of things. Don't be in a position where you, where the machine is right down the hallway and you didn't check the box to get it because yeah. you didn't think an MRI ought to be done in the emergency department. Yeah. I, I think that we need to feel more comfortable ordering them where we think they are appropriate.
1: Right. The problem with most major studies is not the study. It's the cost of the study. Cost and usefulness of the ch- uh, the study are not the same things. If you really need to have an answer, get the answer, and uh, and so sometimes we ha- we have to get a a more sophisticated study. That's okay.
0: Yeah, you know, I looked at uh, what Medicare pays for right. MRIs of the some of the body parts, and you know, it's in the, usually in the. A couple hundred dollar neighborhood, two, three, four hundred dollars in that neighborhood. Mike Gronoski's group sent us some uh, numbers uh, regarding a talk I was doing, and I wanted to know. Now nobody likes Medicare numbers, and you know the private insurance companies want you know three to four to five times what Medicare pays. But uh, when you put that into context, the charges are have no relationship to the true cost. Nope. The
1: last thing Not, he says is about charting. Yep. Yeah. Learn they, the sweet spot. Yeah, his, his comment is a correct one, which is too much charting is a pain in the butt to everyone, um, and you don't need all that information, but find that spot where you do convey the information you want to convey. The chart is a way of you talking down the road to the next group of physicians who are gonna be involved as well as an ability to bring things back to your memory. So the, the charting uh, should reflect what happened and when it happened to that patient and what you're thinking down the road. We're usually pretty good when you, when you analyze young docs charts of the history and the physical, and they get what their past medicine is. What they are not good at putting on the chart is why they did what they did and what they see coming down the road. We ordered X or Y looking for, or we're going to do this in the follow-up program. If you don't know, when you've looked at the end of reviewing the chart, where the patient went, who they were supposed to see, when they were supposed to see that person, what were, you, what were the dangers you were concerned about, then the chart hasn't, hasn't met its need. You mm-hmm. know, it's amazing how good we are at checking off boxes and putting thousands of questions uh, in the history of physical we just don't know where the patient's going and what they're doing when you get done reading the chart.
0: Well, he also says know the key phrases. There are uh, you know a litany of key phrases. It would probably be interesting for us to kind of come up with a, 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 a bunch of key phrases, but we'll have to do that next time around. And obviously, the chart has to be internally consistent. It has to be internally consistent with the history and physical, and and the diagnostic studies that were done and the diagnosis they all have to kind of lead to each other and um you can't have a chart that is in not consistent internally or that it will be easy to take apart yeah so david thank you for your words of wisdom Um, gregory do you have anything else you you like to do Uh, listen i tell you we have about Five minutes where we can do some content. Do you want to do something about how do you get into the legal expert business, or do you want to defer that?
1: Uh, That's that's a longer discussion. Why don't we uh, talk about that in next month's issue? And uh, right now, uh, why don't why don't we uh, end up with just a couple of cases? And I want I want to hit I want to hit a couple of cases. Where, where asking a few questions might have been helpful for the physician involved. One of them is a case of malaria. Now, if you saw a child, this is a New Jersey case, recent case, 18 months old. The fight is the simplest fight possible. The mother says the family says they told the nurse that three, that they'd gotten back from Nigeria three months earlier. This is the winter it's flu season. The child, by the way, has a positive flu test. Now the child's in there with coughed, kariza, um, a little malaise, a little temperature. Uh, The doctor is claiming, nobody told me they'd been in Nigeria. Family says, we told the nurse they'd been in Nigeria, and it's not written down on the chart. Child goes home. What do they think the child has, Rick?
0: The flu, but, you know, I got
1: it. Yeah, but wait a minute. I got to
0: tell you, the uh, flu tests are not very sensitive, but they are specific. If the test is positive for the flu, this kid, in all likelihood, had the flu. So yes.
1: That doesn't mean you can't have another disease. Yes. Uh,
0: you're normally issued one disease at a time.
1: Right. What, what happened? We like to think that happened. Well, the child went home. Two days later is brought back. Now the question begins, was the correct therapy applied? Because... What they did do is they start talking about uh, Nigeria and malaria, all that sort of thing. And actually, whether the drugs were correct, which were started on this child, is one at issue. But that's all right. This is a lawsuit in New Jersey. There's plenty of blame to go around for everybody involved. And probably... Uh, it was pointed out that the regime against malaria that was started on the child that day was probably inadequate to to treat the disease. There was, by the way, when they ordered the correct blood study, no problem making the diagnosis of malaria in the child. So the real question is, who's going to ask these questions? Who's supposed to have written it down? Doctors saying, not my problem, they should have brought that out to me. Uh, nurse saying I have no memory of this, and her record doesn't show it. Who's the problem here, Rick?
0: No, I, I got it, but I think that uh, is there a verdict in this case?
1: Yes. Well, there's there was a three, uh, seven no, I think it's three point seven million dollar uh, settlement. Now, uh, did this I, child die or something? Uh, worse than that, they they lived for a period of time as well with brain injury. Uh, it was a it was a serious case, and the question is who did what. Now, I know the flu test. I mean, if if we randomly took children during flu season uh, who are febrile and did and. and did the test on it. There's going to be a lot of kids who are positive for flu who may not have flu.
0: Right. I think the instance of false positives is small though. And um, it's, and they could have made, you know, this is similar to the case where the person went into the emergency department in, I think it was Houston. And uh, they forget, you know, somebody mentioned that they had been in uh, somewhere in Africa and it turned out that they had Ebola. And there was a history of, the, of, of uh, travel into a um, endemic region, but it just never, you know, the, the it didn't ring any bells that that was the issue. And so the case was not diagnosed at the first ER visit. So then, uh, so we got it. I, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that there is really a great take home message with that, you know, I guess, in retrospect, yeah, it's okay. Um, but would you have thought that the uh, flu, positive flu test in a kid who looks like he's got the flu, maybe the, maybe there's more to it because in those summaries, we don't really get to see what the history's like, what the physical's like in right. actuality. And, you know, um, the doctor thought enough of it to get the flu test. I think that's kind of suggested that that's, that's where that was going. In any case, Gregory, it's time for wine of the month. Have yes. you recovered? Have you recovered to the point of being able to give us a wine?
1: <laughs> I have recovered so that I can comment on wine just fine. Whether I should be uh, uh, drinking it or not is a, is a, certainly another question. But uh, uh, wine of the month this month is we're going to do a we're going to do what I consider to be. If you're in reading a French menu and you want a great wine, we opened one up the other night. It is it is a Chateau Neuf de Pop, uh, four years old. It is just getting into the, uh, so it's a 2015 Chateau Neuf de Pop. Uh, and it is it is one of the great treats of the world, a great French red wine. I would I would recommend this, um, and uh, I will make sure that uh, Megan gets the information uh, for, from the bottle. I'll give it to her so that she can put that in our printing. Okay,
0: well let's wrap this up, uh, Gregory. I'll see you tomorrow night for dinner, and I will expect nothing, less less than Paps Blue Ribbon. (laughs) That's, That's exactly what you're going to get, sir. All right. This is Greg. This is Rick signing off. August Risk Management Monthly. Thanks for listening and bye for now.
1: Bye.